Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Is a de-escalation happening? President Biden today addressed the nation on the ongoing situation in Ukraine. Russia says it's pulling back some troops. Starting today, you can eat out in the nation's capital without a vaccine card. We speak to business owners to find out how the mandate has impacted them and how locals and tourists feel about the news. Medical experts finish investigating the deaths of two teenage boys who died just days after being vaccinated. An epidemiologist says the report confirms a link between Pfizer's vaccine and deaths in children. The New York police arrest a man from the city's second largest Chinatown. He's suspected of vandalizing booths where people can quit the Chinese Communist Party. And today, the family of the cinematographer who was killed on the Rust movie set has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Alec Baldwin and the movie's producers. Concerns are being raised about the Canadian Prime Minister invoking the Emergencies Act to deal with the blockade protests. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association says the threshold to invoke the act hasn't been met and is warning that normalizing the use of emergency legislation is a threat to democracy and civil liberties. Here are the details. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association is raising the alarm over the Emergencies Act being invoked by the country's federal government. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau evoked the act on Monday, making him only the second Canadian leader to do so in peacetime. Trudeau invoked act to end the protests against pandemic restrictions and mandates that have blockaded trade routes and paralyzed downtown Ottawa for 19 days. The act gives the government broad powers, including the ability to require banks to freeze personal and corporate funds, supporting the protests without a court order. Cryptocurrencies can also be targeted. To my right are better than this? Yeah! The act will be used to force towing companies to remove vehicles blocking highways and critical infrastructure and establish zones where public assembly is not allowed. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association said Monday night that they do not believe the federal government has met the threshold necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act. The association wrote on Twitter, this law creates a high and clear standard for good reason. The act allows government to bypass ordinary democratic processes. The standard has not been met. The association explained that the act can only be invoked when a situation seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security and territorial integrity of Canada and when the situation cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association warned emergency legislation should not be normalized if threatens our democracy and our civil liberties. Trudeau said Monday that the application of the act will be time limited it will be used in a targeted and proportionate fashion. The police chief of Canada's capital city of Ottawa resigned this afternoon. This comes amid the Freedom Convoy protests that have taken over much of downtown Ottawa for nearly three weeks. Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slawley announced his resignation in a statement Tuesday afternoon. He didn't explicitly say why he's stepping down, but did mention the protests. In his statement, Slawley said since the onset of the convoy demonstration, he has done everything possible to keep the city safe and, quote, put an end to this unprecedented and unforeseeable crisis. The Ottawa Police Service has faced sustained criticism for its response to the demonstration. 
Pressure has come from both sides. Critics of the convoy and some Ottawa residents have accused police of not doing enough to end the protest. Meanwhile, demonstrators have at times accused them of violating their civil liberties. And the latest on Ukraine, President Biden spoke today as Russia claims it's pulling some troops from the border. Is a de-escalation coming? NTD's Iris Tao with more on that. And I believe there are real ways to address our respective security concerns. Addressing the nation on the evolving Ukraine-Russia crisis, President Biden on Tuesday sounded optimistic that diplomacy can solve it. The speech comes after Russia announced Tuesday that it's pulling back some troops near the Ukrainian border after completing drills. But Biden said the U.S. has not verified that. Our analysts indicate that they remain very much in a threatening position. And the fact remains, right now, Russia has more than 150,000 troops encircling Ukraine and Belarus and along Ukraine's border. An invasion remains distinctly possible. Putin, meanwhile, insisted on Tuesday that he does not want a war. Do we want war or not? Of course not. That is why we have offered our proposals to start the negotiation process. He said Russia is ready to talk with the U.S. and NATO about potential missile deployment limits. But as for what Russia will do next... According to the plan, and how the plan will be made according to the actual situation. The Ukrainian foreign minister, meanwhile, said they will only believe Russia is trying to de-escalate if they actually see proof. We won't believe it when we hear it. We will believe it when we see it. When we see the troops pulling out, we will believe in de-escalation. NATO on Tuesday also remained skeptical. There are signs from Moscow that uh, diplomacy should continue. This gives grounds for cautious optimism. But so far, we have not seen any sign of de-escalation on the ground. Meanwhile, Russia said Tuesday they will deliver a written response to proposals by the U.S. and NATO within the coming days. Reporting D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Senate leaders of both parties issued a joint statement today supporting Ukraine. They warned that if Putin attacks, Russia must be made to pay a severe price and that they're prepared to sanction Russia. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and 10 other senators signed the letter. And the FDA will have a new commissioner appointed by President Biden. He is Dr. Robert Califf. He also served as the FDA commissioner under the Obama administration. The Senate today confirmed Califf 50 to 46. Six Republicans crossed the aisle to support Califf. Four Democrats and one Independent voted against Califf. Back in 2016, 89 senators approved Califf's nomination. Many Republicans who previously backed him say they switched their stance because Califf supports easier access to abortion pills. Democratic Senators Ed Markey and Joe Manchin voted against Califf today. They took issue with how the FDA handled the opioid epidemic while Califf was in charge. Since 2017, Califf has worked or advised for a number of companies, including Google and AstraZeneca. Once Califf gets on the job, acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock will become principal deputy. And starting today, you can dine out in the nation's capital, and businesses can welcome customers without asking for proof of vaccination. Business owners tell us they've struggled while the mandate was in effect, and they're hopeful to return to normalcy, and it will bring back customers. 
Residents and tourists have mixed feelings about the news. Our Melina Weisscup brings us more from downtown D.C. Washington, D.C. is the latest in a string of cities to change course on virus restrictions. The vaccine mandate in the heart of the nation was short-lived, only one month, in effect from January to February. From today, the city is not forcing businesses to ask their customers for proof of vaccination, a relief for some business owners. It's a fu funny feeling. You know, to ask people, they feel like, like you're taking some of their rights, you know, like and we lose a lot of business. When they have the mask on, I think, I thought it was enough, you know. Uh, they can't go in, you know, no, they just leave, you know. He says that's especially the case for tourists, because if they come from a mandate-free state, carrying a vaccination card can be out of the ordinary. And some businesses are already seeing the impact. The general manager of this restaurant tells me they've seen more lunch reservations today than they've seen over the past month. Now business owners can decide for themselves whether to keep the vaccine mandate or to drop it. What do you think you'll do and why? Uh, we're going to, we have been considering whatever the government has suggested since the CDC recommendations and everybody's recommendations since the beginning. And so we'll follow the guidelines of the government, makes it a little better for the guests to understand what they're walking into. And how do residents and tourists feel about the news? I'm, I'm probably like 50-50 on that. Um, I went to brunch about a week ago and it was empty. You know, it wasn't the same. So I get it, but at the same time, uh, is it the safest thing to do right now in the middle of like that cold season? I'm not sure. I, I think it's I think it's a person's right to choose whether or not they want to be vaccinated or not. You know, I'm I'm not an anti-vaxxer. My children are vaccinated, but yeah, no, I think it's great that, that you don't have to worry about showing your papers, quote unquote, to get into an eating establishment. But others have grim expectations. I do not think that they should be lifting those requirements. The cases are going to go back up. Uh, hopefully it doesn't exceed into other cases. Mayor Bowser made the decision citing vaccinations are up and hospitalizations are down. But was there a political motivation in the mix? I think it was more of a political thing all along. It got politicized last year by both parties. Uh, very frustrated with that. These days everything is so polarizing. Can you really be one side or the other. I think there's always a mixture of feelings. And starting on March 1st, they won't have to require masks either. But for places like schools, childcare facilities, and government buildings, masks will still be required for now. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Just days after getting their second COVID-19 vaccine, two teenage boys died in their sleep. Medical experts have been investigating what happened and have now released their report. An epidemiologist says it adds to a body of evidence that confirms Pfizer's vaccine can lead to death in children. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. To attend class in some parts of the country, kids need to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The federal government says they're safe, but gives them warning labels of what could lead to death. Uh, this myocarditis warning that is out on Pfizer Moderna is very serious. Epidemiologist Peter McCullough says this in light of a new report. Its authors investigated the cases of two teenage boys from different states. Both of them had received second doses of the Pfizer vaccine, only to die a few days later in their sleep. McCullough says that in his view, the study confirms that Pfizer's vaccines led to the deaths of the teenagers. That's the conclusion now, and it's the conclusion of several reports in the peer-reviewed literature. This isn't the only one. So it's clear that our FDA warnings on these vaccines are valid and justified. And these reports indicate in some cases it's fatal. 
The report was published by the College of American Pathologists, which is considered the largest organization of board-certified pathologists. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC, lists the myocarditis warning on its website for both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines, but no mention that myocarditis could lead to death. We contacted the CDC, but we haven't heard back. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Today, the family of the cinematographer who was shot and killed on the set of the film Rust has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Alec Baldwin and the movie's producers. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us the details. Lawyers for the family of Helena Hutchins announced the lawsuit filed in the name of Hutchins' husband and their son at a press conference Tuesday. Brian Panish, the family's attorney, said the producers, including Baldwin, had allowed the unsafe conditions on the movie set. There are regulations and guidelines in place today that should prevent something like this from happening, but they need to be enforced. And had they been followed, this never would have happened. During the press conference, the attorneys showed an animated recreation of the shooting based on interviews with film crew members. The video explains why Mr. Baldwin and others were responsible and are responsible for safety on the job site and why their reckless conduct and cost-cutting measures led to the death of Elena Hutchins. Panish said that Hutchins' husband and their son deserve compensation. It is a young boy who will never have a mother, and it's a man who lost his wife, who he had a long-term great marriage with. Also saying that he wants to hold accountable all the people who are responsible for Hutchins' death. There are many people culpable, but Mr. Baldwin was the person holding the weapon that, but for him shooting it, she would not have died. Last October, Baldwin accidentally shot Hutchins as well as director Joel Souza during a camera test at the Rust movie set in New Mexico. The attorneys said that Baldwin had turned down training for the kind of gun draw he was doing when he shot Hutchins. In an interview with ABC News in December, Baldwin said he felt incredible sadness over the shooting, but not guilt, saying, someone is responsible for what happened, and I can't say who that is, but it's not me. A request for comment from Baldwin's attorney was not immediately returned. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Prince Andrew has settled a civil sexual assault case brought against him in the United States, court documents show. Virginia Dufre alleged the Duke of York sexually assaulted her on three occasions when she was 17. The Duke has denied the allegations. A letter filed to the U.S. District Court today said the Duke and Dufre have reached an out-of-court settlement. The sum was not disclosed. Crimes continue to surge in Philadelphia this year. There were already more homicides three weeks into January than in the same period last year. One of the Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidates speaks with NTD on how he plans to fight crime. Here's more. In 2021, Philadelphia recorded 559 homicides, the highest since the city began tracking the figure in 1960. Another 2,000 people were shot and survived. Local residents say they are scared. 
Uh, we have to close early at nighttime now. We have to lock our doors between clients, and we had to secure uh, better security systems. So we're afraid to get out in the streets to do what we need to do. Um, and me as a young um, woman uh, going out showing houses with clients, you have to be very careful. You have to watch everybody that's around you and keep an eye out. In a press conference on Tuesday, Bill McSwain, a Republican gubernatorial candidate, announced his plans to fight crime. He promises to restore law and order as governor and says the cause of high crime rates is very simple. And it's the lack of prosecution. Larry Krasner, the Philadelphia District Attorney, has failed Philadelphia. And as I explained a little earlier when I was addressing the crowd, one of the things that I'm going to do as governor is I am going to change the state constitution so that the governor will appoint the district attorney in Philadelphia and we will get rid of Larry Krasner. McSwain, a Marine veteran, served as a U.S. attorney under the Trump administration. His plan to fight crime includes implementing bail reform, funding the police, and stopping sanctuary city policies and heroin injection sites. And he says gun control isn't going to work. One of the things that I know as a prosecutor is that a small percentage of people commit the vast majority of crime. And those small percentage of people are already people who have felony convictions on their record. And so they are precluded from owning any firearms. So gun control isn't going to affect those people at all. Carlos Vega is an attorney running against Larry Krasner in the district attorney's race. He agrees that the high crime rate has to do with a lack of prosecution. He says the government needs to successfully prosecute violent criminals and not let them back onto the streets. Nine families of the victims of Sandy Hook Elementary School mass shooting reached a $73 million settlement. This after a wrongful death lawsuit against Remington and its insurers. The firearms company made the Bushmaster AR-15 style rifle used in the 2012 shooting. The gunman killed 20 kids and six adults in Newtown, Connecticut. A 2005 federal law protects many gun makers from wrongful death lawsuits brought by family members, but attorneys for the Sandy Hook families pushed a different approach. They attempted to hold the company partly responsible because of its marketing strategy. In 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to take up an appeal by Remington. This effectively allowed the suit to move forward. The next year, Remington filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection for the second time in just over two years. And up next, the NBA's most outspoken player on human rights abuses, his trade and then immediate release, and the outcry over his continued unemployment. And the New York State set two national records after allowing online sports betting last month. That and more on NTD News. Ennis Freedom, formerly known as Ennis Cantor, was traded from the Boston Celtics to the Houston Rockets Thursday in a trade involving four players. The Rockets then released Freedom that same day. Freedom is not your average NBA player, though. The European-born center, whose parents are Turkish, has been the rare professional athlete who's been outspoken about human rights issues in China. Last month, he called the Chinese Communist Party a brutal dictatorship in a press conference hosted by Senator Rick Scott. In November, he tweeted about how the Chinese regime engages in forced organ harvesting 
and that Tibetans, Uyghurs, Christians, and Falun Gong practitioners are all targeted. Freedom, who changed his name from Annis Cantor in November when he became an American citizen, has triggered plenty of China's wrath. Celtics games were pulled from Chinese video streaming giant Tencent back in October, following another Twitter post calling for an end to Beijing's ongoing repression in Tibet. Joining us for this discussion is NTD's own sports reporter, Dave Martin. Dave, is it unusual for a team to trade for a player and then immediately release them? Not necessarily. Uh, in the NBA, sometimes uh, you throw in a player just to make the salaries match up so you can complete the trade, and then the, tra the player might just be uh, released and is free to sign with any team. Now, in this instance, the uh, Celtics sent out three players to the Rockets, and the Rockets only sent one to the Celtics. So they were gonna, the Rockets were going to have to make some moves to get back down to the 15-player uh, maximum. But uh, what is interesting is the same day they released Freedom, they released one other player, Armani Brooks, and the next day they also released DJ Augustine. So that's three players they released. So it's, it's, it's hard to say they released Freedom just because of that trade. And Freedom averaged just 12 minutes a game this season as a third-string center. Would you say his production, or lack of it, led to his waving, or maybe his salary was too much? Yeah, it's it's hard to say his production um, led to this. I mean, he was he was signed to be a third-string center for Boston, and that's what he was. And in that just under 12 minutes a game, he averaged four and a half rebounds a game. And that equates on a 36-minute basis. That's 14 rebounds a game. That's that's a pretty good production for a third-string center. In addition, I mean, the guy is only 29 years old. Last year, he averaged a double-double. So it's hard to say declining skills had anything to do with this. And, I mean, his salary, uh, he signed for the league the uh, veterans minimum uh, last August for just over $2.5 million, which is a lot of money to me and you. But in a league where the top players make between 40 and $50 million a year, that's very little. So it's, it, it's hard to say that production, salary, either of those reasons had anything to do with him being released and not still signed. As previously mentioned, Freedom has been outspoken about human rights issues in China, and this has clearly led to a strained relationship between the NBA and Chinese video streaming giant Tencent. Is there anything about this situation that makes you think this move is more about politics? You know, the initial uh, uh, trade and release, no. But the fact that it's now been five days and no team has picked him up, uh, it, it's looking stranger and stranger. I mean, listen, two months ago, because of COVID, uh, the Celtics were so desperate for players that they reached out and signed a 40-year-old Joe Johnson, who had been in retirement for three and a half years to play for them. Uh, it, so it's it's hard to see um, where Enos Kandrew, who averaged a double-double last year, as I just mentioned, would not be a player that teams would want to pick up. Uh, so, so the longer he goes unsigned, the louder that argument gets that this is a political thing. And, I mean, the bigger the black eye this is going to be for the NBA if this keeps going. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steph. And Freedom's release was certainly noticed on social media as numerous politicians weighed in with support of the outspoken athlete.
Said Donald Trump Jr., the same group of woke activists that told us to believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, doesn't want anything to do with Ennis Freedom, who actually lives that phrase every day. Florida Senator Rick Scott tweeted, the NBA's efforts to push Ennis out are just the latest disgusting example of its cowardly appeasement toward communist China. And fellow Senator Marsha Blackburn said on Twitter, the NBA has made a calculated choice to kowtow to the CCP and turn a blind eye to their genocide and oppression by firing Ennis Freedom. Do you bet on sports games online? Well, if you do, you might know that the practice was illegal in New York State up until a month ago. It was legalized in January and the state broke national records right away. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from New York. Online sports betting is now legal in New York State and the state's already broken two national records. One for the huge amount of bets taken and the other one for the tax revenue gained from those bets. According to Governor Hochul's office, New Yorkers placed nearly $2 billion in online bets during the first month. That's more than any other state has ever reported and will generate more than $70 million in tax revenue. The governor said in a statement, over the past month, we've seen how mobile sports wagering can be an economic engine for New York, driving significant funding to our schools, youth sports and so much more. According to the state, 98% of the state tax gained from mobile sports betting will fund education. 1% of the state tax will fund sports programs for underserved youth and another 1% will fund problem gambling education and treatment. On a national level, U.S. casinos just had their best year ever. According to figures released on Tuesday, America's commercial casinos won $53 billion in 2021. In-person gambling continues to be the main source of revenue for the casino industry, even as Internet and sports betting continue to grow in the U.S. The $53 billion won by casinos is more than 21% higher than the previous best year, which came in 2019 before the pandemic hit. According to New York's data, people mostly bet on football and basketball. Hockey only made up a small fraction of the bets taken. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. New York's records don't include the bets placed for the Super Bowl. So far, five states have reported betting results for the Super Bowl. All five states saw very high numbers. Nevada's total beat its own record by more than $21 million. New York will publish the number for the Super Bowl bets on Friday. And coming up, a husband and wife respond to charges of espionage-related crimes. The husband took a plea deal and said his wife helped him pass military secrets. His wife has pleaded not guilty. And India bans over 50 more Chinese apps, bringing its roster of blacklisted software to nearly 270. The country points to national security risks to explain the bans following a deadly border incident. We'll have more soon here on NTD News. Police have arrested a man from the city's second largest Chinese community. He's the suspect in a violent act of vandalism targeting a street booth that helps people quit the Chinese Communist Party. The movement is affiliated with a spiritual practice that the Chinese regime has persecuted for over two decades. 
Flushing, a self-made Chinatown in New York City's Queens borough. A walk through its streets often seems like taking an impromptu trip to China without ever crossing borders. But a recent attack there has hinted at even more similarities between it and mainland China. Since last week, an apparent pro-Beijing man has been vandalizing street booths set up by Falun Gong practitioners. It's happened four times starting last Friday through to this week. That's until New York City police arrested the suspect, surnamed Zhang, on Tuesday after he returned to the booth in the morning, prepared to wreak more havoc. Previously, the first few attacks happened near the Flushing Golden shopping mall. Practitioners of Falun Gong, a spiritual meditation discipline, volunteered to set up the booth. Its goal, to help Chinese people withdraw their memberships from the Chinese Communist Party and its affiliated organizations. As part of the booth, they installed self-made pop-up displays. They showcase photos and information about the meditation practice known as Falun Gong or Falun Dafa, as well as Beijing's decades-long persecution of the group in China. That's when a man showed up and started destroying things on site, from these pop-up displays to the decorations. In response to the attacks, a district leader for Flushing is calling for an immediate halt to violence against the faith group in the U.S. This table was ripped apart. The banners were torn apart. The pamphlets were thrown all over the district. And it is time to consider this a hate crime, a criminal offense, and that it must end, and it must end now. In a rally held over the weekend, district leader Martha Flores Vasquez reiterated that any hate crime committed against the Falun Gong group is not allowed. This is not China. This is America. Beijing has long worked to extend its oppression of the group overseas. Back in 2008, these volunteer booths in New York came under similar attacks. At that time, a crowd of over 200 Chinese people gathered near a booth. Some waved red communist flags, while others spat on, cursed at, and physically attacked Falun Gong practitioners who were present. The World Organization for the Investigation of the Persecution of Falun Gong launched an undercover investigation into that incident. It released a voice recording in 2008. In it, then-Chinese Consul General for New York, Ke Yupeng, spoke with an undercover investigator. When some pro-Beijing Chinese finish fighting with Falun Gong practitioners, I shake hands with them one by one, thank them, and then I say a few encouraging words. But I can't do it in front of Falun Gong practitioners. Following the release of Peng's voice recording, the Chinese consulate in New York, plus other Chinese-language websites controlled by the Communist Party, removed videos of his previous speeches. But the undercover interview seems to suggest a major component about the 2008 incident. The Beijing official seems to have encouraged the violent incident against the Falun Gong group in the U.S. A former U.S. Navy nuclear engineer pleaded guilty to attempting to sell military secrets to a foreign country. His wife is also facing charges for helping him, and she has pleaded not guilty. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Jonathan Toby, who is 43 years old, served in the U.S. Navy as a nuclear engineer and was assigned to the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program. He also held a top-secret security clearance, which gave him access to information concerning naval nuclear propulsion technology used in warships. Assistant Attorney General Matthew G. Olson of the DOJ's National Security Division said, Among the secrets the U.S. government most zealously protects are those related to the design of its nuclear-powered warships. 
Nuclear propulsion technology allows warships to be out at sea for months at a time without needing to refuel. Toby is accused of concealing a digital memory card containing classified information inside a peanut butter sandwich at a dead drop location in West Virginia in June 2021, while his wife kept watch. After retrieving the SD card, the undercover FBI agent sent Toby a $20,000 payment in cryptocurrency. The Justice Department said Toby then emailed the undercover agent a decryption key for the SD card, which contained military-sensitive design elements relating to submarine nuclear reactors. In August, Toby made another dead drop of an SD card, and the undercover agent made another payment to Toby of $70,000 in cryptocurrency. In October, the FBI arrested Toby and his wife after placing a third SD card at another dead drop location, this time in West Virginia. As part of the deal with prosecutors, Toby admitted to conspiring with his wife to pass on restricted data. Under the terms of the plea deal, Toby will face a likely 12 to 17 years in prison. Now his wife is accused of helping her husband, and she is still facing criminal charges, and she pleaded not guilty. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. India is banning 50 more Chinese apps, citing national security concerns. This brings the total number of banned smartphone apps to nearly 270. And TV's Tiffany Meyer has the story. India is ramping up its cybersecurity tactics and banning even more software from being used within the country. The Indian government added another 54 apps to its blacklist on Sunday. The move brings the country's total number of banned smartphone apps to a whopping 267, all of them developed by Chinese companies. Officials cite national security risks. Local reports say the apps could quietly collect sensitive user data through smartphone cameras and microphones. That information could then go toward espionage or other surveillance activities. The newly banned applications this week include mobile games, video chatting software, and selfie camera apps made by companies like Tencent and e-commerce giant Alibaba. As for those previously banned, video sharing platform TikTok, search engine Baidu, and messaging app WeChat work topped the list. India started banning Chinese apps after a bloody confrontation with the country's troops in June of 2020. It happened along their shared border, which remains disputed. 20 Indian soldiers died in the skirmish. Beijing did not disclose its casualties. Other nations have also taken aim at certain Chinese apps. In the U.S., former President Trump also blocked TikTok and WeChat. The Biden administration later repealed the ban. Coming up, new filings show Tesla boss Elon Musk donated $5 million of the company's shares to a charity last year. How much was it worth? Tennis world number one Novak Djokovic says he is not against vaccination, but he supports people's freedom to choose whether to get jabbed or not. And he's ready to give up the trophies to stand by his beliefs. That and more here on NTD News. Elon Musk donated millions of Tesla shares to a charity last November worth lots of money. That's according to a new filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. NTD's Faye Quarter reports. Elon Musk donated almost $6 billion worth of Tesla shares to charity in November. 
The CEO gave away more than 5 million shares in the electric automaker from November 19th to November 29th last year. That's according to a filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The donation's worth, based on the closing prices of Tesla's shares on the five days he donated it, was around $5.74 billion. However, the filing did not disclose the name of the recipient charity. Musk's donation came at a time when he was trading barbs with politicians Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who called on wealthy people to pay more taxes. Last year, the billionaire sold $16.4 billion worth of shares after polling Twitter users about offloading 10% of his stake in Tesla. Analysts have said there would be a tax benefit for Musk potentially gifting stock since shares donated to charity are not subject to capital gains tax, as they would be if sold. Faye Quarter, NTD News. World number one tennis player Novak Djokovic breaks his silence about being deported from Australia earlier this year ahead of the Australian Open. He says he's never against vaccination, but he supports people's freedom to choose what to put in their body. He also says he's ready to miss more Grand Slam competitions if vaccination is mandatory. Tennis world number one Novak Djokovic says he would rather miss out on trophies than be forced to get a COVID vaccination. Djokovic told the BBC he hoped to compete for many more years, saying, I was never against vaccination, but I've always supported the freedom to choose what you put in your body. The world number one was barred from competing in this year's Australian Open. Both Djokovic and rival Rafa Nadal were on 20 titles and needed the win to become the most successful men's player of all time with 21 Grand Slam titles. Djokovic gave this up and Nadal went on to win. The 36-year-old Serbian is set to return to competitive action in Dubai next week for the first time since his deportation from Australia. He said he's ready to give up the chance to compete in the French Open and Wimbledon if vaccination is mandatory. Djokovic told the BBC, I understand that not being vaccinated today, I am unable to travel to most of the tournaments at the moment. Yes, that is the price I'm willing to pay. Speaking about his experience in Australia earlier this year, he said it wasn't easy and he felt sad and disappointed. Djokovic fueled widespread anger in Australia when he was given a medical exemption from mandatory vaccination to compete at Melbourne Park on grounds that he recently contracted the virus. But he was detained by immigration authorities on arrival, released by a court order and then detained again before being deported. He told the BBC that his medical exemption application was made anonymously and it was accepted by two independent Australian panels. He said he was not deported because he wasn't vaccinated, broke any rules or made an error in his visa declaration. The reason why I was deported from Australia was because the Minister for Immigration used his discretion to cancel my visa, based on his perception that I might create some anti-vax sentiment in the country or in the city, which I completely disagree with. The world number one risks missing the French Open later this year as the French government tightens the rules and there will be no exemption from its vaccination pass law for professional sportsperson. Joy Dugid, NTD News.
Russian figure skater Camilla Valieva argues her positive drug test was due to contamination with one of her relatives' medications. This according to an Olympic official. And some observers say that the Russian doping scandal has taken attention away from the ongoing human rights breaches in China. NTD's Earl Rhodes has this report. Russian figure skater Camilla Velieva was set to take to the rink for the Olympic women's single skating short program on Tuesday after she was cleared to continue participating at the Games. According to an Olympic official, she has argued that her positive drug test was caused by a mix-up with her grandfather's heart medication. The Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that the 15-year-old could compete despite failing a drug test in December. Valieva successfully appealed against the decision for a provisional suspension. Some Olympics observers say that Valieva's doping scandal has taken focus away from China's ongoing human rights abuses. Little more than a week ago, many questions from non-Chinese reporters at daily Olympics briefings were about sensitive things involving China. These days, they're mostly about the Russian doping scandal. The doping saga has been a game-changer at the Olympics, pushing aside dicey topics that Chinese officials like to avoid answering, such as the scandal involving tennis player Peng Shui's sexual harassment allegations against a high-ranking Chinese official, and the ongoing genocide of Uyghur Muslims and other minorities in the Xinjiang region. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. Up next, NASA's Perseverance rover landed on Mars one year ago. The spacecraft is on a two-year mission exploring the planet's dry river delta for signs of earlier life. And Venetians and tourists swapped surgical masks for carnival masks to mark the start of the famed Venice Carnival celebrations. It marks a slow return to normalcy for the Italian city. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. dance performance of what is said to revive the spirit, Shen Yun Performing Arts will be giving more than two dozen performances in seven states throughout the U.S. and Europe this week. Let's find out what its audience members are saying about it. It's a very emotional experience. I don't know how you can watch it and not be changed. Last Saturday, Shen Yun gave six performances in three states throughout the U.S. It's just a fascinating explosion of beauty. Just the colors and the movements, and it is uh, it ranks up there with the uh, best ballet or other dance performance I've ever seen. The dancers and the moves, everything was just so incredible. I didn't know something could be that beautiful. Two hours just melted away, and it, it wasn't long enough. I absolutely love it, and as, especially as a dancer, one of the things that you notice are the different techniques of dancing, and I've never actually seen um, a uh, traditional Chinese dance before, so to watch it and to notice the different uh, traditional techniques is just something that's just so interesting and so beautiful. Ancient Chinese believed that culture and many aspects of it, such as art, were gifts from the heavens. Divinity and seeking something higher outside of ourselves. So I thought that was a very powerful message. And I loved the gentleman that, that sang the bass, um, the, the line that he had about um, the creator opening the heavens for us was particularly touching to me. His, his voice was just 
brought me to tears. And um, to hear him sing like that was so much power and uh, so much emotion behind the voice and behind the words. But uh, the fact that Chinese culture is divinely inspired was something that I never knew, and um, it really adds sort of, I guess, like an element of mystery and, I guess, divinity to, to the performance because all of it is just, I guess, somewhat angelic. But since the communist regime took power, it systematically destroyed China's core values. Saw this, you know, China before communism, and I, I think it's a, an important message to to us all about where we all can end up if we don't pay attention. Help me kind of think about my own faith and my own values, and you know, and how really those are contrary to communism. And so we do need to think about those things yeah. and, and stand up for our higher values and our higher morals. Yeah. I think that a production like this has a huge potential to bring people together of all cultures. It makes you feel just joyful and happy and uplifted and um, like you're floating. NTD News, New York. It's been one year since NASA's Perseverance rover landed on Mars. The spacecraft is on a two-year mission exploring the planet's dry river delta. Part of that mission means drilling into rocks, which could hold evidence of life three billion to four billion years ago. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. In February 2021, NASA made history by putting a spacecraft on Mars. The Perseverance rover landed near an ancient river delta in Jezero Crater on February 18, 2021, to search for signs of ancient microscopic life. Five cameras sent images back to Earth. And so when, we, when I heard about the successful landing and I was at home with my family and my young kids, which was actually really nice to be able to share that moment with them, I felt such a release, re release and relief at successfully having landed Perseverance on Mars. But celebrations were short-lived. The mission was still in its early days. But for those of us on the science and operation teams, landings are really when the work begins for us. And so we had this moment of celebration, but then we had a couple of hours, and then we had to begin uh, operations and, and telling the rover how to prepare itself and, and to do its work on the surface of Mars. Perseverance is one year into a two-year mission to explore the dry river delta and drill into rocks that may hold evidence of life from 3 billion to 4 billion years ago. The core samples will be sent back to Earth a decade from now for study. When we got the data down and we saw that we had a sealed sample, we couldn't be more ecstatic. It worked. NASA expects to bring back the rocks as early as 2031, several years before the first astronauts might arrive on the red planet. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Over the weekend, Venetians and tourists swapped surgical masks for carnival masks and costumes to mark the start of the famed Venice Carnival celebrations. With the carnival taking a hit from the COVID-19 pandemic, it marks a slow return to normalcy. We hear more from NTD's Neil Woodrow. The 2020 Venice Carnival was curtailed when the pandemic broke out in Italy in February that year, but now it's back. According to local media, around 80,000 people, including 32,000 foreign tourists, came to enjoy the celebrations. 
a number far fewer than those of previous carnivals. But that doesn't matter to this participant. It's a little different because it's much quieter and we don't have so many festivities. But we will make our own parties and festivities, so it will be fun. The Venice Carnival began centuries ago as a period of excess before Lent, the 40 days of fasting that traditionally precedes Easter. This lady and her family from Parma were getting lots of attention. She was intent on enjoying the occasion. I came here because I missed the carnival so much and because we haven't been able to celebrate it for two years. I came here with my whole family in masks to celebrate the carnival with all the Venetians, good people who have also had great difficulties. And this Venice resident, dressed as the explorer Marco Polo, has a message to all. After what happened to the Venetians, who have a great spirit of happiness and joy, they all surely celebrate. I'm not joking. Come to Venice and have fun. The carnival also took place on the water. Dozens of traditional boats illuminated by colored lights and fires paraded to the sound of drums along the Grand Canal in Venice. The parade led by the Pantagana, a boat with a giant water rat, was announced at the last moment to avoid too large a crowd. The carnival art director says this parade wants to send a message to the world. Venice is alive, the carnival is here, and we hope to come back in full swing next year. But for the time being, this is a little bit of a taste of the carnival. This is the meaning of this year's parade. We decided to recreate all the traditional characters of previous carnivals. We wanted to put all of them together toward the future, toward the next carnival. However, some of the most awaited attractions, such as the Flight of the Angel and the Venice Carnival Costume Competition, were cancelled this year. But there's still lots to see for the limited numbers watching the Venice Carnival, which runs until March the 1st. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.